0: Great to see so many of you. Um, for what I know, uh, knowing Betsy will be an excellent evening. Um, I'm especially delighted to be able to, to sit here uh, and work with Betsy because uh, I've admired her and her work for quite a long time. Of course, the two things don't always follow the admiring of the person and the admiring of the work, but in her case, uh, they're absolutely united in my mind. Um, I want to read you something that came this morning through the post. I imagined when I was growing up, I think that one of the things about achieving even a small amount of uh, fame or notoriety as a writer was that you would get fan mail. But of course, I was perfectly wrong about that. What happens is that you do get mail, but it's usually fan mail intended for somebody much more famous that you might know. So people send you things all the time in the assumption that you might pass things on. And I got one of these this morning. Betsy doesn't know about this. It's uh, it's, it's from a poet called Mark Rodman. Um, I'll read you a little bit from the the covering letter first, it says, um, I mean he sent this poem for publication but um, I'm sure he won't mind me referring to it, and even if he does it's too late. Um, (laughs) Please show Betsy this poem uh, and say I'd like to dedicate it to her because of how much I liked her book. Uh, My central interest was in her role in Il Grido at first. Uh, I didn't write a dedication because I think it's presumptuous to dedicate poems to people you don't really know, Quite simply, I found her extraordinary. I won't read you the whole poem because it's pretty long, but I will read you the first stanza. The poem's called The Kid Gets the Picture Made, Desdemona. I have a friend, we all have friends like this sage or bullshitter, who says that Orson Wells used five Desdemonas in the three years it took him to shoot Othello, and that when the cast had by then fatally dispersed, He himself dubbed all the male parts for the final cuts and he went from Leah Padovani to Cecily Aubrey to Betsy Blair to Suzanne Cloutier only to have the latter's dialogue dubbed by Gudrun Uri (laughs) and he saved a later lover, Paolo Mori, for some of the long shots. He might have stopped with Betsy, flaw, too right for the part, too savvy, too subtle, too strong, too shrewd, too well-spoken and English speaking it would have been desecration to dub her with a mother he could have tried one English woman in the role no so her D might have been a match for his O this would have been an intolerable thing to Wells, as the thought of Dee's infidelity was to Owen. So it goes on. The multiple testimonies do nothing to refract from the insult to the mind. <laughs> this is a serious fan, I think, um, writing th- this poem. But I think it gives a good flavour of some of the feeling that uh, Betsy has inspired through her career. Um, let me just tell uh, tell you a thing or two about Betsy before we go into our discussion. I see my role tonight not so much as an interrogator for Betsy but as a prompt because I know that the stories she has to tell, I know from experience are absolutely frustrate. Betsy was born in Cliffside Park in New Jersey. She was a child model, became a chorus dancer at 15 and appeared on Broadway in Panama Hathi and William Sawyer's The Beautiful People. She was married to Jean Kelly for 16 years and appeared in such places as Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie as well as Sabrina Fair and The Rainmaker. She appeared in many motion pictures including A Double Life, Kind Lady, The Snake Pit and of course Marty for which she was nominated for an Academy Award. She was also married for many years as we'll discuss in the course of the evening to the filmmaker Carol Rice. Now Bessie, you're going to be judging this year at Cannes and I thought it might be a nice way to start off a discussion just for you to tell us how that came about and what you're you're (coughs) expecting from that. Because it has been 50 years since, uh, since Marty was there at Cannes winning and being applauded.
2: Well, that's, I think, why it happened is because it is the 50th anniversary and Marty won the Golden Palm and Ernest Gordman and I were the actors cited. There were no other actors who won. And uh, then my book came out in France and I think that probably reminded them I was alive. <laughs> so, so then they invited me. Uh, and I'm going to be on the uh, jury for In certain regard. That's the sort of arty section of the festival. And, well, it's, uh, I'm delighted because from that festival, which was the first time I'd ever been to a film festival, I just think it's the greatest thing in the world. I mean, I had the most wonderful time in those two weeks and learned so much. And then ever since, when I've been to a festival, I still love them. And uh, so I'm very happy to be going. That's how it happened, I think. I mean, it was Marty that took you there, um,
0: that famous time. But can you just talk to us about Marty right at the outset? I mean, how did you come
2: to get the part, and how did it happen? Well, um, I was working along in Hollywood, and for the first seven years I was there. I think it was seven, six or seven. I was very, very young. I was seventeen when I married Jean, and we went straight to Hollywood. And so for those first years, I was quite pretentious about having acted on Broadway. Now obviously I hadn't had any time to study or become a serious actress, but I saw myself as this very serious actress who would have my own theater. And I was also very political, so I was gonna change the world with this theater. We were gonna do serious, I was gonna be fantastic. But it was all in my head. (laughs) And at the same time, I was living and having, you know, very happily married Jean became a movie star very quickly. We were living a very luxurious life. I had a baby immediately, so I was extremely happy with that. And uh, I had a very nice life in which I kept saying, which was sort of true, I think, in the beginning, that I didn't want to be in the movies. I was a theater actress. And uh, so I sort of was just going along happily living my life, occasionally acting in a little theater, When it was convenient to my life and in los angeles and uh finally george kukor who i knew socially uh, said betsy uh garson canaan who'd written the screenplay and i we have this little part he sort of apologized in not in the sense that it was a small part but for the fact that he knew i didn't really want to act in the movies but it would only take three days and Of course, by then, I was absolutely dying to be in the movies. But I could never go back on my sort of pose of, I mean, I wasn't able, anyway, so I said, yes, yes, of course, I'd love to, George. So I was in uh, a double life for three days, uh, shooting three days. During those three days, there was an extra playing a journalist uh, who, Garson Kanan, who was a playwright, knew as a young playwright, thought he was very talented, knew he was starving, so he got him a job as an extra. Luckily for me, it was the same time I was shooting, and that was Paddy Chayefsky, who eventually, after a few years, went back to New York, started to write plays for television, wrote Marty among them, and was immediately brought to Hollywood, and they were going to make Marty, the director of the television and Paddy Chayefsky, United Artists. So it seems Patty said on the airplane, I know a girl who could play Clara. And uh, he said, me. And Delbert Mann, I'd been in a television play for Delbert Mann playing a rich college girl. And he said, no, 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 she's too young. and And Patty said, no, she can't be too young. She had a kid when I knew her. She already had a child. So I did get to go and audition. I auditioned and I auditioned and I auditioned, read for them. And finally, I did get the part. Actually, Burt Lancaster was one of the producers. And when I left the third, after the third reading, the secretary whispered to me, I think he got the part, the great stone face had a tear in his eye. (laughs) That was was Burt Lancaster. Uh, So I did get the part. And then I got the phone call from the producer saying, Betsy, you'll have to... Because in the meantime... <laughs> in the meantime, back at the ranch... No. In the meantime, um, the black... The Joseph McCarthy, had happened. Hollywood was full of... was completely... Just the Hollywood I knew and lived in was sort of destroyed. Not my personal social life, but my main other activity was... Were all, my activities, my interests, my friends, were all political. And we... The, it was a cataclysm in Hollywood. Uh, and f- for four years before this occasion, when Patty Shayefsky telephoned and I got to audition and I got the part, I hadn't worked. I'd been on the blacklist. So, and uh, during those four years, I thought, I don't need them. I went back to my original. I don't need them. Did, I'll, you, did you say something Betsy, about how the blacklist worked? Well, on the in the beginning, uh, the studios claimed there wasn't any blacklist. And I, we all knew there was, uh, because people kept getting fired. And that was before the subpoenas, that was before they were called to Washington and the real hell started. There was already the blacklist starting. A bit like f- last year, when those singers had their music taken off the radio and, and you know, and suddenly... Uh, Tim uh, Janet uh, no. <laughs> the
3: Texas yeah, right. yeah. yeah,
2: that's right. Yeah, uh, Susan Sarandon and 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 Tim, and Robin. And Robin. Tim, and Tim yeah. Robbins, uh, you know, were being boycotted or told not to appear on television shows and things. Uh, it started like that, slowly, a little bit. But we all understood what was happening. And uh, for me, it was that suddenly a journalist said to me. Uh, you're being replaced in a movie. It's going to be in the Hollywood Reporter on Monday. It's also in the that same Hollywood Reporter, the newspaper, that uh, you and Lloyd Goff and Gail Sundergaard spoke at the groundbreaking, uh, the, the new actor's studio, the actor's lab, the new theater, the, the, the groundbreaking ceremony. Well, they were known communists They were also wonderful actors. I was quite happy to be in the paper with them. Uh, and But then, when he said I was being replaced, I realized that, aha, uh-huh, it's now hit me. Uh, the blacklist is now here at, at home. So I had, well, it's all in the book, I had uh, uh, an interview with LB Mayer, and uh, this was four years before Marty, 1951. And uh, I sort of thought I'd convinced him that. Uh, I really believed in the American Constitution, and I was really a good Democrat, and uh, I just wanted to help the other things and the other people in the world and all that. Anyway, it was quite a, I would understand now, quite a humorous interview, but I didn't realize it then. It was very tense and important to me. And actually, Gene came, and he was the head of MGM, and Gene was under contract to MGM. Gene came after I'd been there an hour. He came from his rehearsal room to rescue me, he thought. And so the secretary came in and said, Mr. Kelly's in the outside office. So L.B. Mayer took me out there. He put his arms around, one around Jean, one around me. And he said, well, she's a lovely girl, Jean, and she's as American as you and me. (laughs) (laughs) So we we thought, okay, Uh, And so I was in that movie. That was a movie called Kind Lady. And that was a, a B movie, a metro B small movie. And I was in that. But after that I was blacklisted. Well, uh, he just didn't want to embarrass his star, was what happened in that case. I mean, his star, if I was going to make a public fuss, which I said I would to my agent, uh, and at that time they were claiming there was no blacklist, and if I went to the paper and said, I've been blacklisted, it wouldn't be good for Gene. And that's what they cared about, was their investment in Gene. So anyway, I was in that. And then the four years passed, and I didn't work. I was going to become an archaeologist, or I was going to write a book, or uh, what, I was going to do anything. I didn't need them, I thought. But of course, I was miserable not acting, because by then I'd been in one movie, another. I'd been in about six or seven movies, each time with a slightly better part. And this in Marty was a great part, I knew. I mean, I knew it was a wonderful scenario. That was the first thing. And uh, so when the producer came and said you'll have to see the congressman or write a letter or and that meant you had to name names and I wasn't going to do that uh, I was giving up the part and I tried not to make a fuss at home <laughs> naturally but uh, I was miserable and Gene saw that and he went he decided he went into LB Mayor's office and said I'm gonna stop shooting it was no longer L.B. Mayer then. It was a man named Dora Sherry, who was the next head of MGM. What, what and film was th- he making the time? Do you remember? Mm, I think it was... No, I don't... Yeah. Mm. It's Always Fair Weather? It was It's Always Fair Weather? I'm glad you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's Always Fair Weather was the movie for those who couldn't hear the back. Yeah, and uh, uh, so he, Gene just said, I'm going to stop shooting if you don't do something, to Dory. He actually said, to Dory, who was a civilized man, he wasn't L.B. Mayer, he was educated, civilized, lovely man. He said, you know her, you play charades with her. You, you know she's not going to overthrow the country. I mean, we have to do something or, or I'll stop shooting. Well, I think that was the important part. So in front of Jean, Dory Sherry called the American Legion in Washington and he vouched for me. So I was in Marty. Well, I thought that meant I was off the blacklist. It didn't. It just meant he vouched for me for Marty. Mm. So uh, that's how I was able to be in it. Mm. Could we go back to just the period before
0: um, uh, Hollywood even? Now we've become so used to the idea of Hollywood stars appearing and stage plays and uh, being uh, very Mm. enthusiastic about the idea of repeating. You've described a world where really there was a separation between people who had been on Broadway, people who existed there, and people who made it in Hollywood. Um, why, why was the, that, that separation? Why was it important
2: to you? Um, well, the, the separation in the United States, we thought at the time, and it's true still, is geographical. The, we always thought how lucky the English are. They've got the theatre and the movies in the same town, and then they had television too and for, for us the movies are in California and the rest of it's in New York mm-hmm. so now a lot of the television's in California too and you know it has all changed to a certain extent but at that time that was that was the real separation and hardly anybody went back to the theater mm-hmm. I mean Gene was asked to be in Death of a Salesman but MGM wouldn't let him uh, they didn't appreciate the play or it wasn't the leading role uh, it was the oldest son, and Jean was very disappointed, but anyway, that was, it was very rare then. Did you have ambitions uh, to go to Hollywood even when you were in New York? N- no, not when I was in New York. I certainly did as a child in New Jersey, because my whole focus, practically, of show business was Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, because I, I went to dancing school, and uh, I was, you know, supposed to, I was sort of the star of the Swift Sisters School of Dance in Cliffside, New Jersey, and uh, so I was going to be a dancer, I was going to dance with Fred Astaire. <laughs> <laughs> Where did the politics come from, such as, I
0: mean, they developed to be such an important part of your whole life and still Well, still
2: I, I went to New York, it's, it's, all, it's quite long, all this stuff. Um, I went, I was supposed to go to university, I had a scholarship, my mother was a school teacher, so I was very good in school. And I had a scholarship to Sarah Lawrence. And that was fine. The only thing was I was 15 when I finished high school. So I went to the interview for Sarah Lawrence, and they said, I was too young uh, socially and emotionally, and I should wait a year. They told the scholarship, and I should go to junior college, and I should come the next year. Well, there wasn't any money for me to go to junior college, and so my father thought I should go to secretarial school. And... I saw an ad in a paper saying Call for Dancers. And so I said to my mother, I don't care what Daddy says, I'm going to this Call for Dancers. And that was in New York in a nightclub. And my mother, who was this lovely, gentle school teacher, not a bit a stage mother, uh, thought that she took me to Macy's and bought me high heels. <laughs> she loaned me her lipstick and uh, she took me to this call for dancers in New York in something called the International Casino and uh, she waited in a coffee shop and I went into the audition and I got a job so that was supposed to be just that year you know that while I was waiting and it was $35 a week now both my brothers had been to university and they weren't making $35 a week so my father thought that was very good this is this is 1939 and uh, so there I was dancing in the nightclub my father picked me up every night at 2 in the morning and drove me home to New Jersey because I was a little girl and uh, I mean a very young girl and uh, so that was how I started that nightclub closed it turned out to be a mafia nightclub (laughs) It it did. I mean, they ran off without paying us the end of the... We didn't have any union then, the dancers. And uh, so then I got a card for for another nightclub, a a postcard call for dancers to Billy Rose's Diamond Horseshoe, which was another nightclub. And that was in January. The, The place closed in December. In January I had the card. So I was all ready. I went to that. And... I arrived, it was in the basement of a hotel, the Diamond Horseshoe, and a bellboy showed me down. So I went down and there was nobody there. And uh, there was a young man pushing chairs and moving chairs and tables that I, this is the meeting cute story. And and I I thought he was another bellboy. So I said, is this where the call for dancers is? And he said, yeah, but it's tomorrow. And I said, no, 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 it's today. I had a personal card from Billy Rose inviting me to the call for dancers. And he said, well, I think you'll find it's tomorrow. I fished it out of my bag and said, today's the uh, 10th, isn't it? And he said, no, today's the 9th. And I said, oh, all right, thank you. As I went away, he said, are you a dancer? And I said, yes. Well, I was, this was a bellboy, and I was this vain 15-year-old who'd already worked in a nightclub. And uh, uh, he then said, are you a good dancer? And I turned around and said, very. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, the next day, when I get there, of course, at the right time, on the right day, there's the director, Billy Rose himself, the, uh, the costume designer, the stage manager, and the choreographer. And the choreographer is... The bellboy, <laughs> and he's Gene Kelly, and, and uh, so of course I was extremely embarrassed. I think I'm blushing now, but I'm really, I blushed then. I mean, I, I don't know. It was it, he was fine. He thought it was all funny. He just kept smiling, you know, grinning at me, not really smiling, just sort of grinning. And so I, you know, there. I went through the whole thing. I got chosen. I was in the chorus of the Diamond Worship, and. Well, I don't know. I was. I didn't know I was in love. I didn't know why I felt so good. Uh, I didn't know why I changed my clothes at lunchtime, my rehearsal clothes. I <laughs> did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway, uh, there I was. They treated me. He and his friend, who was the rehearsal pianist, who was a playwright, not not a successful playwright at all. I mean, he got killed in the war, so he never was. But. Um, it, they took me, I, they, I was like their kid's sister. And so that's what it seemed like to me, and I was having this fantastic time. And they were showing me New York, and they said I wouldn't need to go to college. They'd they educate me. And it was all wonderful. Um, and, of course, being with these people who were grown-ups, they were 28 and 29, mm-hmm. and all their friends were about that age, and I was hanging around. I was uh, taken along with... And so I was listening all the time to all this conversation. All these people who were actors and playwrights and writers, and they seemed to me to know everything. Well, naturally, yeah. coming from New Jersey, they did. They were interested in, no, they were interested in poetry, they were interested in history, they were interested in art, they were interested in, I mean, they were interested in everything. So I really, in a, you know, six months, got a very, uh, not just concentrated, uh, education and also got to see and love New York, um, and but there was one of the actors, Lloyd Goff, They were all left wing, and he invited me after a few months if I wanted to come. He had there were Marxist classes in his apartment, <laughs> Tuesdays and Fridays, <laughs> and so uh, I of course wanted to go, and I was I was eager to learn. I was ready to learn. My mother was a true democratic, I mean, really good woman. My father was a Republican. So I'd always heard all that at home when he said, you're just cancelling out my vote, and she would just smile. (laughs) uh, uh, So I had a good grounding in the American Constitution from home. And on that, with the Marxist classes, uh, I was ready to I know, I, this seemed like the, the best possible world, the best possible future, the best possible. How lucky I was to be able to learn about all this. Uh, I remember Lloyd had once said to me before he asked me to, he said, uh, So what about the Spanish Civil War? And I said, what, w- When was that? <laughs> and he said, What did they teach you in history class in Cliffside? I said, They didn't teach me that. I mean, I'd never heard of the Spanish Civil War, and I graduated in 1939. Uh, So anyway, that was how the left wing started. Um, In Hollywood, um, at the house
0: in North Rodeo Drive, I mean, you describe very well in the book a sense, a constant sense you have of being lucky, uh, being well-favored, of it being a wonderful time, a sort of dream. Um, I just wonder if you could describe for the audience, uh, in lieu of their reading the book, what was so magical about that house? I mean, the parties, the Sundays. Could you just talk
2: about that? Well, I can talk about it, but I can't really say what it was or why. Um, it was a wonderful period after the war. Well, it was during the war, and then we went back to the east while Jean and Jean went into the navy. But then, when we came back, that period from '45 until uh, until McCarthyism was a sensationally optimistic. Uh, fulfilling, uh, wonderful period where life, not just in Hollywood, but in New York, but all over the country, I think. It must have been... It was probably much harder here. I remember when we came here the first time, I think in 50... It was either 50 or... It was still rationing. And, you know, it was shocking, surprising to us. Uh, And so it wasn't the same here. In America, it was a kind of explosion of... Uh, energy and uh, good fortune and for everybody. Now, in our house, there was Gene who was a really nice regular fellow. He wasn't uh, bedazzled by being a star at all. He was just uh, loved to work, loved the fact that he was succeeding in what he really wanted to do, which was to bring dancing to everybody that everyone should have this joy, not just people who went to the ballet or the opera. but the, And that was he was equipped to do it, he was capable of doing it, and he did it. And that really made him happy. He was also, you know, a nice... He was no longer a practicing Catholic, but he'd been brought up as a nice Catholic boy, and he'd been poor. So he wasn't a bit... Stars, he wasn't a bit Hollywood. He didn't go Hollywood at all. And certainly I didn't. I had more... Uh, maybe more neurotic reasons or more egocentric reasons. I didn't want to I didn't want a swimming pool, I didn't want I didn't want to look like a rich lady. I didn't want I had my causes. I had my things that I believed in that I wanted to work at and I knew that I was lucky that I was living this luxurious I mean, not luxurious like five servants, but certainly luxurious. I mean, lots of people had but five servants, but by amazing parties are described. I mean, well people the, singing and just you know. Well, the parties. I don't know how. I it was. It just grew out of how we were. We, lots of people were musicians. There were people who played the piano. Everybody that was involved in this in the musicals used to come. Uh, this you know. The, name, be name names well, I are not keen on naming names in this occasion <laughs> but but be, be, the evening would be sort of the Saturday would be probably a volleyball game or a ping pong tournament or something in the late afternoon and then there'd be drinks and then there'd be supper and then there'd be uh, charades we were the champion charade players uh, and uh, we played the racing one the one where somebody's in the middle with the same list and the team's run back and forth and I mean it was fantastic I mean it was <laughs> so much fun so much uh, laughing and falling around and people getting furious and I mean it was really good and then after that was the best part when either there were people who entertained like Betty Compton and Adolph Green who did an act who would uh, be funny there was a there's an actor named Elliot Reed, Ted Reed, who was the funniest man I've ever seen who did his characters and accents. And and then there would be the singing and dancing. Now the singing might be Judy Garland, uh, it, it might be uh, uh, Noel Coward, it might be, even when we had a party for the NAACP, it was Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. But that was more. That was a more formal party, mm-hmm. that wasn't a regular Saturday night. The regular Saturday night was everybody doing everything. The rest of us standing around the piano shouting and singing mm-hmm. uh, just for fun, just for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But then, then Jean might dance, there was a dancer named Carol Haney who became a star on Broadway afterwards who was a great dancer, and they would improvise and dance. And you just build things back and. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, the living room, you know, the piano was on one end and the couches were along the walls. And, mm. Yeah. Uh. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and Sunday, there'd be the volleyball game in the afternoon and then a, a 16 millimeter movie at night yeah. with supper in between.
0: But at the same time as that was all going on, there was the looming difficulty of the blacklist. I mean, did, did the blacklist
2: really, in a sense, put an end to all that? It didn't put an end to it. In our house, it put an end to a few of the people who used to come, mm. because uh, Hollywood split in in half. Uh, very clearly, the people who cooperated with the committee were, you didn't have to say, you're not welcome. they knew. They didn't come. Um, um, and so, and we didn't lose anybody very close to us, but a few people were no longer there. But uh, it didn't, I mean, I always had to say that, Although I was unhappy to be blacklisted, I was unhappy not to be able to act, it didn't change my life physically. I didn't suffer because I was married to Jean. I lived in the same house. I had the same advantages I'd always had. I, it, um, but, um, I mean, I'd always had with Jean. And um, But the atmosphere of the whole town changed, and gradually it affected everything. Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, well it turned into uh it turned into a, a war a battlefield uh, not physical but except for the ones who had to flee and came to europe and uh it, you know it was yeah she hated them you hated them and you know, I, carrie my daughter remember she would come home from school and this television was a little black and white thing then and and she'd find me glued because it was all broadcast when it was the hollywood people and that's why McCarthy turned to Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood was not a hotbed of communism. There were communists working in Hollywood, yes. And they were working for all the good things, all the good American necessities the, against racism, for the unions, for women, for... I mean, just the usual left-wing causes. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, nobody even dreamed of a national health service then. <laughs> but... Uh, or, or that would have been on the agenda.
0: You mentioned Europe and I want to get to your European adventures but certainly at that exact moment um, when this was happening in Hollywood you were already moving towards Europe I mean, you came to work in Europe at that, at that period, didn't you?
2: Well, I, I, well once, one Sunday the phone rang at lunchtime and it was Orson Welles calling from Paris and I happened to answer the phone and he said, Betsy, would you like to come to Europe and be Desdemona? to my Othello in my film. So I said, yes. (laughs) I'd already been. Charles Lawton had Shakespeare classes uh, one or two years. And I'd been to his classes in his house in the evening. And uh, he was very encouraging to the Americans about how our English was closer to Elizabethan English than the Queen's English. And so he encouraged us. He said we didn't have to worry. We were all very worried to, to speak Shakespeare, but anyway. But for Orson, for a movie, I was kind of, yes. So I did come by myself. That was the first time I came to
0: Europe by myself. I mean, that was mild and difficulties all the way through, wasn't it? Could you just talk? I mean, we've already heard from the, our friend. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. The many Desdemones. Well, but can you give us I mean,
2: I didn't know there'd been one before me uh, until I got to Rome, <coughs> which is where I flew to meet him and meet them. And uh, uh, then I learned that they'd already been shooting, but they had to stop because he ran out of money, and that there had been a different Desdemona that was Leo Panavani, and that she had said that she'd sooner sell flowers on the Via Veneto than work with them again. <laughs> 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 and, but I mean, I didn't, I said, that didn't bother me. And uh, uh, so I was fitted for the costume. So we were gonna shoot in North Africa. And I loved, I mean, it was wonderful. I, the Italians, I mean, I just loved the whole thing. Uh, I ended up with a blonde, blonde, you know, sort of bleached. Not very, but blonder, because in black and white, my hair, which was fair, were red. Titian uh, didn't, it dark, so uh, he thought Desdemona should be blonde. Mm-hmm. And so I had the wig and the beautiful costumes, and then I flew to North Africa with...
1: J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The the crew with the others and uh, had a wonderful time for...
2: I don't know about three weeks I think four weeks I only shot two days on the ramparts when my lord <laughs> Othello arrived and uh sort of long shots and just well, I think one greeting each other but uh and then mostly I would borrow a bicycle and go and watch the shooting and uh, deliver the mail and I was having a very good time and uh then we stopped shooting and then uh I got a message in my hotel room to be ready to leave the hotel at 11 o'clock the next morning uh, to go to Casablanca, I was going to go see Orson, this is from one of the producers, and uh, so the car was there and I went and Orson was in bed in a hotel in Casablanca, in white silk pajamas, rather grand, and he said, Betsy, I had no money again. And I know you don't want to hang around Rome because you have Jean and Carrie at home. And uh, so, and I'm sorry we never got to the real scenes, but we'll have a wonderful time in Rome when we get to the real scenes. And we had discussed the characterization and she was to be this revolutionary girl in Venice because she had made done this revolutionary thing. She'd married the black man. And she, so we had this conception of the character that I thought was you know, very good. And... Uh, So we'll have this great time in Rome, and I'll let you know as soon as I have the money. And, oh, can you buy your own ticket? (laughs) Just to go back, you'll get reimbursed. So I I of course, and I was so sorry for him running out of money. I said, of course, Orson, yes, Orson. Of course I will, that's all right. Uh, So I flew back to California. And for a while, it was fine. People would say, uh, I heard that Cecile, that he was talking to Cecile Aubry. And I would think, oh, I see. Well, Ce- Ce- Cecile Aubry was the girlfriend of the Pasha of Marrakesh. Maybe he has to do that. Maybe he to get the money. Uh, well, that I would understand that. That's all right. He's a great artist. It's all right. <laughs> uh, but that was, you know, that was. good. I didn't. I wasn't very happy. But I, it was all right. But eventually, uh, it wasn't Cecile Aubrey so then I thought, oh, he's, he's going to get the money and I'm going to go back. And then it was Suzanne Cloutier, mm. and she was actually shooting. And two years later, I was in Rome with a friend, a woman, and we're standing on the street corner, and my loyal friend was looking at a photograph on the cover of Paris Match of Suzanne Cloutier as Desdemona. And my loyal friend says she has very cold eyes. and <laughs> And I say, "Well, yeah." And the voice says, "Hello, Betsy, and it's Orson standing behind us in. The <laughs> and he said, "And I was very glad to see him. I mean, I, I, you couldn't help it. He was extraordinarily um, charismatic, is too boring a word, in a way. Uh, he was so. Powerfully energetic in his brain and in the language he used and the way he thought of things, that you just loved him. I mean, he was just fun to be with and to listen to and to talk to. Anyway, he, he said, "Are you suing me?" And I said, "No, I'm not suing you." So he said, "Okay, I'm taking you to dinner." So we all went to dinner, and uh, that was that was the end of. Hmm. You were, actually, you were actually shooting in Spain when uh, the night of the Academy Awards, when you were nominated for
0: Marty. So you went in the auditorium, were you?
2: Well, no, I don't really know. I haven't got that time straight because I don't know what year. I think maybe, maybe it was the Academy Awards of '56 mm-hmm. instead of the film was '55, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure.
0: Do you remember finding? You must remember finding out whether um, you'd be nominated and so on. I mean, yes. you just describe what that was like. And
2: Well, I mean, it's thrilling, of course, and I mean, I I, I can tell a story about a friend that illustrates the whole thing. Um, uh, uh, The Italian director uh, of—you have to tell me who it is. of uh, Antonio No, no, not my. No, I know the ones I worked for. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Chinese, yes, you are. Bertolucci. Bertolucci. So Bertolucci is nominated, and he's in Hollywood and an, another friend, Cito Mazzelli, an Italian director, good friend of his, and they're all young communists together and all sneering at Hollywood and Academy Awards and prizes and the whole thing. And Ar- Rai, the Italian television, asks Cito Mazzelli to come do, the night of the Academy Awards to do an interview with Bertolucci uh, there in Hollywood, but he's in Rome, and so he does, and he says, but. But but you, you listen. What are you doing there? How you, I mean, you all, we always said that it was useless that these prizes meant nothing, and that the Academy Awards particularly in Hollywood. And Bertolucci said, "Yes, Cito, but you don't know how exciting it is." <laughs> 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 and of course, that's the truth. You can have any theory you want, and yeah. when you're nominated, uh, yeah. all the theories fly away. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I wonder if you can just take us in further into that European. Period, um, and perhaps talk about the end of your marriage to Jean. That um, uh, yes. Perhaps including the story of it walking across the park and the people queuing up. You know the one?
2: Yes, but I um, mean, <laughs> they're, the they're going to be dead. There. It's no use if they buy the book, they're going to be they love it. There's plenty more of that. You're telling them all the good things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, it was. I can't explain the end of my marriage. I mean, I can't explain why I. I tried, when I wrote the book, I tried, and I was completely truthful, and I did search in my soul, and depths, and whatever you search in, and I tried to understand how I could have uh, left what was seemingly paradise, and it's just such a simple thing, which is the same thing I, I sort of said all the time. I grew up, and, and uh, I was a little, little girl, and he loved this perfect, pure little girl, and he wanted me to stay like that. Now, uh, he didn't want me consciously, he wanted me to grow. I mean, it's it's impossible to explain. Um, he didn't do anything wrong, except be who he was when I was changing and wanted to be something else. And so I feel that... In a way, it's I, I wasn't capable. I was capable of changing myself. I was capable of growing up, but I wasn't capable of of convincing him that uh, I was the same person, but I wasn't. Anyway, whatever it was, I had to go, and I did. And uh, it was you know, it was as all breakups are difficult, I think, and uh, tearful and changeable and whatever. But I did go, and I had met a Frenchman. Which made it possible to go, uh, and he was lovely. And I moved to Paris, and uh, the story I can tell the story about here in London, but it was part of the. <laughs> I, <would. laughs> at, we, I was here with Jean at the time of the and Carrie, at the time of the coronation, and we were at his agent MCA had an office right at Hyde Park Corner, looking out on. Up Piccadilly, and, and they had a party. And we had to be there at 7.30 in the morning in order to see it come by and went before they closed off the roads. And uh, it was champagne and smoked salmon and all that, and it was all very grand and fun. And I'm on the balcony with Carrie, holding on to her, contour, on the balcony. She's about seven. And I'm explaining to her that she must look very hard because this is the last time that this will ever happen in the world. <laughs> now, this is from the Marxist point of view, you see, <laughs> and from knowing nothing about England. You know, I mean, I, you know, not, not nothing, but practically nothing. And uh, so I'm there, you know, seriously explaining this to my little girl, and and enjoying the whole thing very much too, while Jean is uh, being. Irish in the background being very anti-royalist and irreverent and having a very good time with everybody and everybody's laughing, it's all very nice and it's, you know, full of interesting people, this party. Anyway, that was, but on the way there, we had to be there at 7.30 and we, we were living in a house on the other side of, of, the, of Hyde Park corner, of Hyde Park and, um, do I mean Hyde Park? Yes, no. Uh, yes, and uh, not Marblewash, no, Hyde Park and we had to get across and as we came across there was a great crowd already in the square was full of people and we came across, the three of us, to get to the building on the on the Piccadilly side and uh, there were a few drops of rain and a few people recognized Jean and people said, glad oh, to have you here <laughs> and uh, you know, people glad to see you and how nice you're here for our big day And and he, he's smiling, and we're all smiling. And uh, and then there was a bit more rain, and then somebody started to sing. Uh, <laughs> and so then everybody was singing, singing in the rain. And then we're sort of, you know, the way is parting a bit, and it's raining a bit more. So we started sort of running a little, skipping across, running across. Uh, and they're all singing. And when we get to the doorway to go into the building, uh, Jean turned around and did a little pirouette, sort of, and a little thank you bow. And it was a sensational moment. (laughs) And uh, we went up in the lift to the sixth floor, and you could still hear them singing when we got to the top. So, I mean, it was just a, yes, it was a very nice moment. (laughs) Wonderful.
0: I mean, I'm very <coughs> keen uh, to get in quick time to, to question because I know many of you will have them but I mean despite uh, Betsy's anxieties there's so much in this book that we could really be here for four hours and still not touching so much of it we're having to jump through whole periods so when you read the book you'll see uh, how rich some of it is. Um, I want to go though um Jump ahead a little bit and because uh, I don't want to have got gotcha to questions before talking about Carol and your period in London and how you um, really had another life, um, a life that started in, in, in London. I wonder if you could just lead us into that. Well, you mean s- skip the uh, Skip
2: Europe <laughs> <laughs> for now. I'll yes, let you okay. on. I mean, this
0: <laughs> Antonio, do, but, but everybody can ask about that <laughs> if you want to, but I just want to cover it okay. this way
2: first. Uh, well, well, I had met Carol. Um, I met him once, I met him, and then I met him again, and then um, I came to London to be in a play, and I was a friend of Lindsay Anderson, and I met him some more, and, and then, uh, um, you know, I was a judge at a festival and tour of short subjects, and he had a short subject there which won, and I had fought for it, you know, had a big deal, a big fight with the with the other members of the jury, It was because it wasn't dubbed, it wasn't translated, it had no subtitles, so I had to explain what it was about, it was We Are the Lambeth Boys, and, uh, well, I eventually won this battle with the other jurors, and he did win the prize, and uh, so I sent, I, you know, he, he sent me a photograph, of that. I mean, he wrote a note, and just, I mean, we knew each other for, I don't know, two or three years casually like that, and then uh, it got more serious, and then eventually we were in love, and then eventually. We got married, and I moved to London, and uh, I moved to London and we got married, and uh, then we had 42 happy years. I mean, it's... uh, We
0: spoke yesterday when we were having a matter about all this, but I felt very strongly that, of course, I don't know about... North Rodeo, Rodeo Drive, but I know that up the roads in North London you and Carol together created a sort of community an idea of people coming around the table um, it wasn't perhaps as vigorous and there wasn't many, uh, <laughs> it wasn't as, as musical but there was a, certainly this uh, tradition there um, that you both maintained of encouraging young people, encouraging artists and there was a lot of people
2: around the house, is that something you'd always wanted? I didn't think I would consciously ever, but I guess it is because otherwise it wouldn't have happened, but I also had to accept, I, mean, I have to s- uh, understand, people say to me, oh, it was you that made the atmosphere, but it wouldn't have happened if Jean hadn't wanted it, and it wouldn't have happened if Carol hadn't wanted it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, uh, I think maybe Carol changed a bit when I with me, I don't know, because I know that when I first knew him, I was always one for going out, you know, you go out, you do things, you see everything, you go to everything, and Carol was much more sort of wiser and, and quieter and more inclined to also stay home and read a book and uh, go to the galleries and, mm-hmm. and come back, not go out to lunch, come back home. You see, I guess maybe being a film director, you're away so much that he liked to be home. Well, I realized, especially now that I'm alone, I'm like, I got more like him. I like to be home. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't, I see my, fr- when I go to New York, I see my friends, they all still run around all the time, see everything, and I think, oh yes, I would like to go see that, but maybe I'll go some morning in the week. I don't have to go to the opening. You know, it's uh, I have changed. I've become more English and I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, during your time
0: with Carl, obviously, uh, a whole different world of cinema. Um, free cinema, but obviously you've been in Europe, I want you to skip back a little bit before we go to questions. I mean, your experience with some of the big directors and some of the work that you did there, um, being among your best work. I mean, can you just talk about maybe the differences? You're one of the few people, one of the few actors who can really span the two, who was in Hollywood and it's Haiti and has also been in Europe at the forefront um, of some of the greatest new movements. And could you just talk about those distinctions?
2: Um, well, I was. it was the, it was the studio system in, Hol- in the Hollywood I knew, and of course, it was a great system for production. It, they, they had, it was also a very secure system for the, for the actors and directors and writers. They were under contract. When a picture was said, you know, when they decided to make a film, it was going to be made. So there was never any tension about getting the money, or the money might drop out, or will we have a distribution? It was a monopoly system, but it really worked for the good of the, of the community. Uh, the whole community, including the, all the technicians and all the... Uh, they worked. Everybody worked. Everybody who, you know, not actors. There were always too many actors. But uh, if you were under contract, you were secure. And it made... They had also had to produce a lot of films when they still had to own the, the theatres. Because in Cliffside, New Jersey, there'd be four films a week. Double bills that changed once a week, so... You could go in the beginning of the week and see two films, and then Saturday you could see two more. So that was a lot of movies to produce. So it was very, very productive that system. It was also uh, powerful and controlling. But you didn't. Nobody suffered very much. You know, they, they complained the same way actors and directors and writers always complain. But they weren't really suffering because mm-hmm. they were getting things done. Uh, now I came to Europe. And discovered that I thought I, I thought the great atmosphere that I found on the sets was because they were so small. The crew was small, and people all knew that it was precarious, and so it was all in the, all together making this thing together, much more than in Hollywood, where the electricians and the, they were sort of studio. Standby. They were there, not standbys. They were studio fixtures, <coughs> so they didn't care much about each film. Whereas I found in Italy that everybody cared terribly about the film you're making, and that was extremely uh, agreeable and and interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it possible in your mind? I mean, you had a pr- I mean, you had part of a production
0: company in Europe. I mean, did you see? an opportunity in Europe to marry if you like your aesthetic and your political interest, did you feel the cinema, cinema was potentially much
2: more political in Europe at that time? I don't think I ever thought of it in those terms and I don't know that anyone I did probably the Italian filmmakers, the, the, the serious, uh, they did they, but um, no everybody was always in, in every country and everybody who wants to make films is looking for a good story mm. uh, of course you, want it. you only are attracted to the things that express your view of the world, mm-hmm. so the left wing finds things that, uh, that interest but them. For
0: example, I mean, with Carol, I mean, when Carol makes a film like Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, didn't you think, well, oh, there is some sort of rhyme to this, because that in some ways is a film like Marty.
2: Yes, oh yes, uh, yes. No, no, what I thought when I saw Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, which was before I, he made before I knew him, um, was that it was wonderful. You know, oh yes, and, and you do. I didn't actually make a connection, yeah. a theoretical connection in any way. But that's the reason, the reason I loved the screenplay of Marty was probably the same reason I loved Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. Because mm-hmm. um, they were very, very good. They were wonderfully made, too. Mm-hmm. Both, both the screenplay and the movie. And, uh, and they were the area, the world, that I wanted to see on the screen. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I mean, before it just. It, it before was, it, call, what I'm trying to say is that it was, wasn't theoretical, mm. it wasn't conscious, it was intrinsic. Sure, sure.
0: Given that experience and the experiences described in the book, do you feel that there has been a sort of coarsening of relations? I mean, we talked yesterday about whether we'd discuss politics, and I think it would be nice to at least discuss it a bit, right, no, you've got a perspective on this. Um, the the Europe that you came to and its attitudes to America are very different from the attitudes to America that exist here now. No.
2: Yes, yes, completely different since 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 well, I guess since Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that even Vietnam didn't change the emotional attitude toward America. It was critical. It was a critical attitude, but it wasn't hating it like now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly for me, when Nixon was reelected, I thought maybe I'm not American, but I've, I've recovered. I realize I am. Uh, and then uh, with the election in 2000, I mean, the whole thing now is so disastrous in America, so terrible, that, and yet I don't agree with the European um, condemnation, the complete condemnation I mean, and also that's wrong to say because there isn't a complete condemnation. It has to be recognized that um, the, the, that it is half and half, you know, as the elections show. Uh, it's 50% of it is still the United States everybody loved. It's still the United States of the American Constitution. Half of it. And the other half is, now, the big thing is not to let the other half really take over. They've taken over now. But it's always temporary in a democracy. It always Mm -hmm. changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next election, even the congressional election, which is sooner, uh, may change the balance. Mm -hmm. And every day I read the Herald Tribune and think... Oh, that's a good thing. They're fighting Tom Delay now, or they're not. Uh, you know, John Bolton isn't being accepted automatically, and I mean, so it's always a fight. And I, I would never give up on America, mm. and I do feel that many serious people have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Norman Mailer talked about when he first arrived in Hollywood. I think it was nineteen forty-seven, and he said there were two salons that were liberal salons in Hollywood. One was run by you, and the other was run by Salka Viertel. And Salka I'm sorry, I haven't read your books. I, I don't, don't know if you cover this in the book. But the Viertel Salon was more for the emigres, so for the man, for Brett, for Dietrich, and Garvel. And I wondered what the relationship was like between those two groups. Well, uh, I, was, I laughed like that because I was so flattered to be be called a salon, or somebody who ran a salon like Salka, because Salka was this fantastic European woman who not only was an intellectual and uh, had been an actress and was an intellectual, but was a sophisticated European. She was everything. I mean, when I first met her, I thought that was my spiritual mother. Uh, and uh, so I'm very flattered that Norman Mailer said that. But, uh, uh, the, I went all the time on Sunday afternoons. I gave up the volleyball in my backyard because the men wouldn't let us hit the ball. <laughs> they were unfair. They, get, they ran in front of us and did the. And I finally gave up and went to Salkas instead. Um, and in Santa Monica. And so I had these wonderful Sunday afternoons. Uh, she had English tea. You'd walk on the. You'd have lunch. If you, but I never got there in time for lunch. But uh, then you'd walk on the beach and then you'd have English tea and, and it was Brecht and Feuchtwanger and all those people. So that was fantastic for me. Um, she was a great woman who spent every cent she had to help the refugees. Uh, the ones I've mentioned, except the Brechts, didn't actually need the money. Thomas Mann and uh, Feuchtwanger had money besides, but uh, if they had, she would have given it to them. Uh, she. She did everything, she was a sensational woman. And I loved her. And so the, the relations between, we were all friends. I mean, Gene loved her too, but he had to play volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Bessie, uh,
0: how did you feel uh, to be constantly described in the script of Marty's play? Well, you were obviously beautiful, as you are
2: now. And, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I didn't feel anything at all about it. I was an actress, and uh, I-, I was pleased when, I don't know, some of the New York Times, I think, said I was a bit too pretty for the part. I didn't. And of course, I was a little pleased by that, but all I cared was it was such a good part and such a good script, and I was dying to play the part. I didn't care, and I thought it was quite... Because the dialogue was so good, it was quite—it was all funny too. I mean, it, it was true. And for them, I wasn't. For those fellows, I was playing. They didn't—they, you know, that's not their idea of what was pretty. So it was—it was all right. I didn't have any bad feelings about it.
1: Can you say a bit more about working
2: with uh, Juan Antonio Bardem on Cabo Mayor Well. I'm so sorry he's dead, uh, because when I saw him last, which was the 30-year anniversary of of uh, Caillé Mayor, he was talking about making a sequel. Now, that's not why I'm sorry he's dead, but that's another reason I'm sorry he's dead, because it would have been fun, I think. Um, it was a very extraordinary experience, a very good experience. He had written the screenplay, and he was a very wonderful director, very intense, but also very um, paternal in a nice way. Not uh, You didn't feel frightened at all when you were shooting with him. He was really, you felt secure. Uh, and then it, the adventure of that shooting was that he was suddenly arrested. And Franco was still there, and he was a communist. And so he was taken away to jail, and the shooting stopped. And I didn't really speak Spanish, I could, you know... You know order dinner or say thank you but I uh, but I did have friends on the film who were his good friends who kept me posted about what was happening he was in jail for two weeks the film stopped shooting there was a great running around of trying you know the producer would say uh, I'll get another director we have to go on Juan Antonio wants us to shoot to, the film to be finished uh, uh, I'll get René Claire or I'll get Jules Dasson. Well, I knew that Julie Dasson wouldn't do it, you know, that he wouldn't step in for his comrade that was in jail. Uh, but I didn't know about René Clare, so I got frightened and said, uh, I couldn't do it unless Vardem himself told me to continue shooting. I, I couldn't do it just by you saying it. It's not that I don't believe you, but I couldn't. Uh, so he arranged to take me to the jail. And Vardem did say, Betsy, I do want the film to be finished and but I knew he uh, I just knew he didn't mean it I mean I just knew he was he, he couldn't say anything else so I well it was quite funny because I'd worked very hard in Europe every time I started a movie in Europe I knew that everybody thought this was going to be somebody from Hollywood uh, the crew the dressers the you know and that she's either gonna be difficult or she's gonna want too much, or she's gonna... So I'd always, I'd never been a movie star. I'd only been the lead in one movie, and that was a little cheap movie, Marty. There was no, you know, it was not. So I'd never actually, I didn't have anything to say, oh, it was better then, anyway, although I'd seen it all with Jean. But, uh, so I'd always tried very hard not to be, but then I suddenly decided the only thing I could do in this case was to be difficult. So I became a very difficult actress. I wouldn't speak to the producer. I wouldn't answer the phone. I wouldn't, you know, they'd send somebody around to say, you have to come in because we have to start shooting. We have to start talking about it. We have to start, and I wouldn't speak. I wouldn't do any, I just wouldn't do anything. I just wouldn't cooperate. In the meantime, I'm talking to Paris and the Spaniards there, and they're all saying, don't don't shoot, it's the only hope is that the producer will, if he can get someone else to do it, Direct it, and if you'll shoot. Then he'll stop trying to get by them out of jail. So you mustn't stop. So, so I, I didn't. And uh, so eventually, I think there was a French co-producer, and he came from Paris. And I think he had some influence. I had called the American embassy. I had gone to see the cultural attaché, because I thought maybe if I'm in an American, I'm in a movie that stops shooting. They can do something to help. Uh, I'm an American citizen. So I went to see the cultural attaché and he said, uh, so is it an American film? And I said, no, it's a Spanish-French co-production. And he said, oh, well, then we have nothing to do with it, but thank you for coming, um, uh, you know, if you need anything else. So later, when I had my FBI file, I discovered that that whole conversation was reported and that it said I was known to consort with communists and keep an eye on me. <laughs> so I was, I was appealing to the, to the same people that were reporting on me. Um, so I think the French producer had, the French embassy may have had some influence. But I don't know that for sure. Just that after two weeks he was let out of jail. We did finish the movie. And uh, that's, I mean, he never talked about it to me at any rate. Because I had said, when he first asked me, I said, oh, I can't come to Spain. I'd love to be in a movie for you, but I can't come to Spain while Franco's there. And he just said, Betsy, and I I did understand that I was this little American saying, I won't go there. And he was fighting the whole time. He was living, fighting. His whole life was that fight. So I did go.
0: Yes. The episode of uh, the Hollywood Nine or was it 10 or 12, who uh, flew from Hollywood to Washington to stop all this un-American activities? It always intrigued me, because uh, they left almost as precipitately as they came, with their tail between their legs.
2: To Washington? Yeah. Well, it's I'm thinking of the Bogart, Betty Murphy, well helping uh, um, Yeah. Yeah, the thing is that they went I don't know how many they were when they went Jean was among them and uh, I think they were 12 or 14 or uh, and they did speak to congressmen they did speak to they did try they gave a, uh, conference uh, press conferences they did do what they thought as much as they thought they could do they came back it was only Humphrey Bogart who recanted it was only Humphrey Bogart who said uh, if he'd known there were communists he wouldn't have gone. Um, but he was, I mean even his own son has said I don't know if he got scared for his career or if he changed his mind. Uh, but I mean he obviously got scared for his career because uh, I don't think he stopped giving money, uh, he just he just disassociated himself from from the accused. So, uh, but it was, it, was a, it was a good effort, it was a well-meaning thing, and they did do some good in that the, they had newspaper interviews because they were mostly all stars uh, that went, but it didn't do any good in the long run. But it was only Humphrey Bar- Bogart who had his tail between his legs.
3: <laughs> How did you feel when Eli Kazan got a Lifetime Achievement Award? Furious.
2: <laughs> um, uh, I was among those who felt strongly that he'd had two Academy Awards for his work which he deserved I mean that's right but he didn't need one for uh, uh, his life's achievement since he had given names, his friends, his friends you know, um, Lee J. Ka, his close friends he had given their names and, uh, and he could always work in New York he was the foremost director he didn't need to, give, to do it for his career. People tell me now, and I did read his book, and his book was very lively and interesting, uh, but um, he skirted around that. Uh, and, no, I, I can t- I'll tell you, when this was happening, and where there was a committee against, in Hollywood, and then there was a committee of some old people around Europe and John Barry, who was an American director of blacklisted, was wor- was working for that to make a petition to, to make an ad for the New York Times about Kazan and this award and he said to me, "It's funny Julie Dasson hasn't answered he doesn't seem to be wanting to be associated with our ad and we all thought that was very odd. It was because Julie Dasson had his own ad and his was brilliant because it was about he wrote a little piece about Benedict Arnold who was our traitor who had been a war hero who had lost a leg in the war and was a decorated war hero and then became a traitor and uh, when he was buried and there was the question of whether he should be buried in Arlington Cemetery as a hero and uh, Alexander Hamilton said only his wooden leg should be buried in Arlington (laughs) (laughs) Cemetery so so, uh, Julie Dasson was saying because uh, that's work, is, is should have the Academy Award, not the man. I know many of you will have
0: questions uh, you'd like to put to, Betty, uh, to, to Betsy yourself, uh, and please feel free to do that. I know Betsy's delighted to sign books. It is of course impossible to do justice in just over an hour to a life as rich as Betsy's but the book indeed does uh, do justice to that life and uh, please those of you who don't have copies, buy them here, Betsy will sign them, it will be a great thing to to have to read now but also to have on your shelves, a great adornment to any bookshelf, please get one. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.